Hello, and welcome to the Westside Church's special podcast. I was in law school, and there was a shocking decision that came from the state of Hawaii. The state of Hawaii, the state Supreme Court of Hawaii said that it was a violation of Hawaii's own state constitution to define marriage to be between one man and one woman. And so that was unconstitutional. No longer would there be any prohibition based on gender when it came to marriage in the state of Hawaii. And I remember there was just shockwaves across the country at that point in time because people were wondering, well, what does that mean? What what does that mean, not just in Hawaii, but what does that mean in Alabama? What does that mean in Tennessee? What does that mean in Missouri? What does that mean in Texas? Because people were thinking to themselves, wait a minute, I, I think I remember somewhere back in government studies about the full faith and credit clause that suggests that what one state does has to be recognized by other states. What does it mean? And so state legislature after state legislature started passing laws, amendments to their constitution, saying no, marriage is defined as between one man and one woman. And then the federal government got into the business as well. And they passed the Defense of Marriage Act that defined for the federal government, marriage is one man and one woman. And it was thought that's the end of that. But you know, in 2013, United States Supreme Court declared that there was a constitutional right to homosexual marriage. And with one stroke of a pen, all of the state constitution prohibitions, all the state legislative prohibitions were gone. Fast forward to eight years later to today, I was taking my then uh, 15-year-old daughter to high school. And we were listening to NPR and there was a story that said that the Pew Research Center had conducted a poll of attitudes on this very subject of of gay marriage or homosexual marriage. And how do people feel about that? And the poll said that 70% of Americans approve of gay marriage. Seven in ten people you meet approve of gay marriage. And you know if you're involved at all in entertainment, that in the movies and in the television shows and the streaming series, that lifestyle is being celebrated. The characters are being shined in a very favorable light. The only unfavorable characters are the people who dare to say, well, there's something wrong with that. that that's, those are the bad guys, the Christians who have the audacity to think that the Bible has something to say on that subject. Folks, it is being promoted everywhere, and society is changing its views on this subject. You have to concede that point. It is in the comic books. It is in uh, stories. It's in the music. It's everywhere. And so the question for us, what do we do about that? There's change. If you're as old as I am, you can remember when things like this weren't normally openly discussed. People weren't comfortable so-called coming out. That's not the day that we live in. And so what should we do as Christians? Should we be quiet about that teaching? 
Should we kind of put it in the back bench? It's, it's kind of almost embarrassing. We, if seven in ten Americans approve of this thing, and we're saying that from a biblical standpoint it's wrong, maybe we need to quit preaching about that. Maybe we need to stop saying so much about that. Maybe we need to be quieter, speaking softer tones about that. Maybe we ignore it altogether. Maybe we re-examine. Maybe this was just something unique to Paul. And he had some homophobic issues. And we can discount and marginalize and write out part of the New Testament because it is not in sync with the society that we live in today. What do we do about this change? that is upon us. May I suggest that what we do is we believe God's teachings on this subject and we defend those teachings, we practice those teachings, and we share those teachings. I believe what the Bible says about homosexuality and you should as well. I want you to open your Bibles and let me ask this, I'm just curious, how many people, just put your hands in the air, how many people actually have a physical hard copy Bible? Hmm. Quite a few of you guys. Okay, let me share. This story's for you all. So I was uh, in the Birmingham airport, and i getting onto the plane. I'm on the ramp, getting ready to board. And I'm just stopped for a while. We haven't made any more progress. And I'm kind of looking at my phone and kind of minding my business. And, you know, you have that peripheral vision, right? You can kind of see things going on around you. And so I saw a guy right kind of in my left corner over here that just kind of. And I would say, well, this is getting awkward. Uh, so finally, he just kind of fully commits and just looks over. Well, here's what I was doing. I had this here and it was in my phone doing this. And he finally come all the way. And I just kind of looked at him and he said, oh, the Bible. He said, yeah, wow, man, I tell you what, we don't see that much anymore. We have a physical hard copy Bible. That's the way my dad taught me. But we don't do that anymore, man. We don't do Bibles. I, he talked about his daughter. He said, man, I really wish I could get her to buy one of these and read these. But she's all on the electronic. So for all y'all that raised your hands and said that you had, I want you to know you guys are dinosaurs. Every last one of you. I mean, there'll come a day when some little Johnny will say, Mom, what is that? Oh, son, that's a Bible, a hard copy. They used to carry those back in the day, but that guy doesn't know better. So, uh, but I'm glad you have your Bibles, whether it's electronic or whether it is Bible, a physical Bible, because that's what we're going to look at tonight. We want to look at it from a biblical standpoint. I believe what the Bible teaches about homosexuality, and you should as well. The first point I want to make tonight is this. The Bible is the inspired Word of God. The Bible is the inspired Word of God. May I say this? If you get nothing else from this sermon, that alone is the most important thing I'm going to say tonight. The Bible is the inspired Word of God. Because that ought to be obvious, but it is not. It's not obvious to the world. It's not obvious to a lot of religious people, and I'm afraid to say it. It's not obvious to all baptized believers that the Bible is the Word of God. What do we mean by that? Look at 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 17. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 17. The Bible is the inspired Word of God. We need to believe that. 
2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 17. The Bible says, But you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Now listen to verse 16. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Why? That the man of God may be complete, fairly equipped for every good work. The Apostle Paul says by inspiration, Timothy, you have known the Holy Scriptures from childhood. I like that. I like that. Because some people would suggest, well, you know, the Bible's for older people. Uh, the Bible's for adults. The Bible's for people that are seasoned and, and wise and on up in years. Or, or the Bible's for people once you've done everything you want to do in life and spent all of your best years on the back end. That, that's when you start studying the Bible. He says, you have known the Scriptures from childhood, which tells me what? That a child can know the Scriptures. Don't tell me otherwise, because Paul just said, Timothy had known the Scriptures from childhood, and it made him wise unto salvation. But then he goes on to say, the significance of that is this. These are not just any writings. These are not just the writings of Isaiah and Jeremiah, just prophets, just men. He says, what these writings are, is they are God-breathed. They come from God. They're inspired from God. The true author of the Scriptures, the true author of the Bible, the true author of God's Word is God Himself. And on the basis of that, yes, it's profitable for reproof. Yes, it's profitable for doctrine. Yes, it's profitable for instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be complete. It's not just any old book. It's not just any old writing. It's a writing from God. And people miss that time and time again. Maybe we miss it. You know, most writings, it's, we can do this. We can pick up a book. Maybe it's a self-help book. Maybe it's some how-to book. And we read the book, or we're reading it online. Uh, and we're reading the material, and we're evaluating. We're saying, hmm, yeah, you know, that makes sense right there. I like that. No, nah, I disagree with that. That's totally off. He totally missed that. Or we start to evaluate the source and say, hey, what does he know about this? He's never done this. He's never been in the military. He's never advised anybody financially. He didn't graduate from here. Hey, how does he know that? So we can evaluate writings on all many different levels. And we have the right to choose what we want to obey, what we don't. What we think is legitimate, what we don't what we high, hold in high esteem, and what we don't. And the problem is we do that with all of these man-made writings, which may be a legitimate approach, but then we take that same approach to the Bible and recognize, oh, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, you can't do that with the Bible. We can't dive into the Bible and say, now, what he says over here, yeah, what Peter says, that, that makes sense. Yeah, that's right. Oh, man, what Paul said over there. Now, I, I can't get with that. That's not right. See, the Bible's inspired, so you have to take it all. It's not, who's the source? Who's the author? Many times we talk about the Bible and we say, well, so-and-so said this, so-and-so said that. Ultimately, God said it. This transcendent being who knows all. And he doesn't need culturally updating. You know, he doesn't need for it to be culturally edited. It's not he forgot. Not that he's bound by time like man is. This is a transcendent being who's speaking to us, has spoken to us through the scriptures. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verses uh, 16 through 21. 1 Peter, the first chapter, verses 16 through 21. The Bible is the Word of God. That's the first and most important point tonight. The Bible is 
the word of God. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 21. 2 Peter, the first chapter, verses 16 through 21. The Bible says this. For we did not follow cunningly devised fables. We made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For you received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the exit glory. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place. And to the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. Listen to this, verse 20. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. Some versions say origin. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. That's the significance of inspiration. Men did not write what they wanted to write. Paul didn't sit down and say, this is the world according to Paul. Based on all my accumulated experiences, this is the way I think we should live. Peter didn't say, based on my lifestyle and my culture and what I think is right, here's the way you should live. He says, no, 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 no. The Spirit of God moved men to write the things that they wrote. They did not write what they wanted to write. They wrote what God dictated or demanded that they write. And that gives it authority. And that's why we can't, I call it, uh, we can't practice cafeteria-style acceptance. You know what that is, right? Cafeteria-style acceptance. We had here recently a young lady grew up in Birmingham. Y'all probably have restaurants like this. Maybe Spring Creek Barbecue is one of those. But there are just certain restaurants that it's just, you have to go there if you live in the city for any period of time. And this young lady not only had lived, in, but she had grown up in Birmingham. And she had never been to Nikki's West. How can you go grow up in Birmingham and not go to Nikki's West? If you, anybody in here goes to Birmingham, go to Nikki's West. You have to have that experience. So, so we were going to rectify the parental neglect of this young lady <laughs> and take her to Nikki's West. But we had to prepare her because she wasn't trained for this. She wasn't ready for this. We said, now, first of all, you've got to know what you're going to order in advance because these people are very quick. They're very efficient. And if you get up there and start stumbling and fumbling and asking about this, ask about that, they're going to be next, next, next. I've seen it happen. Somebody, you tell the rookies, they don't know. Uh oh, fried pork chops or what you got great to, next, next. Because they don't have time to deal with you. They're moving along. And so we prepared her. She did really well. But here's what you can do. You sit there and say, hmm, they've got some fried chicken. They've got some baked chicken, fried pork chops. And you just kind of choose what you want. Yeah, let me have some of those uh, collard greens. I don't know about you. I'm a collard green person. I can deal with turnips, but I like collards. So give me some collard greens. Uh, don't want any yams. No. Oh, some mac and cheese. Yeah, I'm down with that. Uh, hmm, don't know about that rice. That eh, looks a little dry. None of that. Uh, and I'll take, oh, chocolate, oh, chocolate pie. Got to have some of that. So you just kind of pick and choose what you want. And that's fine. That's legitimate. But that's not legitimate when it comes to dealing with God's word. And say, well, you know, hey, I love all that teaching on grace. Woo, I love that. I love that teaching on the love of God. Boy, that's good stuff. But that obedience, woo, I don't know about that obedience stuff. That's, that's tough stuff. 
And I don't know about that. I tell people, I said, look, if, if it's open season on the scriptures, if we can just pick and choose what we want, I'm going to tell you the first thing that's going to go in my Bible. That turn the other cheek stuff. That's gone. Out. Out. You mess with me, I'm messing with you back. That's what I want. That, that, that would be the world according to Kevin Clark. But it's not the world according to Kevin Clark. God says, turn the other cheek. And he didn't ask me to evaluate that. What he demands is that I understand and practice it. So that's what people are missing. When God speaks through his word, we don't have the right to come in here and say, well, I don't know about that. And it doesn't matter what the polls say. It doesn't matter what the pundits say. It doesn't matter what the surveys say. It doesn't matter what the professors say. What matters is, what did God say? That's what counts. And everything else is irrelevant. So I understand that society is changing. But that doesn't impact us one bit in terms of what is true. Because God's word is truth. We want to be, look at the Thessalonians. They really had it right. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. Jason, I'll tell you, man, you're probably thinking the reason why you went first is because you're a first-timer, you're a rookie. Had nothing to do with that at all. You see, Brother Roberts has no confidence in my ability to bring this plane in on time. <laughs> so he puts you first. Me, I can keep going. Remember, he said, you got to be respectful of the speaker. There's no other speaker. So we're we going to be here for a while. So settle, settle in, settle in. First Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. First Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. For this reason, we also thank God without ceasing because when you receive, listen to this, when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. He says, look, when you heard the truth being presented, when you heard the gospel being presented, you welcomed it not as our word, not as what we thought about things, not our viewpoint, our perspective, our tradition. No, he says, you welcomed it as it was in truth, the very word of God. See, there's a difference. When you welcome something as the word of God, it's authoritative. God's not asking for your opinion. He doesn't care about what you think about, and what's hard, and what's difficult, and what's right, and what's fair. God didn't ask that. What God is saying is, this is my word. You submit. I'm the creator. You're not. And so on this subject, as any other, we can't sit back and say, well, I don't know, God. I don't think that's quite fair. I don't think that's quite. Who are you to question God? That, that inspiration means that God has spoken. It is our job to understand what he has said. It's our job to study what he has said. It's our job to meditate upon what he has said. It's our job to obey what he has said. It's our job to share and teach and preach what he has said. But it's not our job to question it and change it and tweak it and edit it and update it. No, you don't do that with inspired literature. That's what we mean when we say the Bible is the inspired word of God. Second point. Second point for you is this. The Bible condemns homosexuality as sin. The Bible condemns homosexuality as sin. Turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 19. Genesis the 19th chapter. Second point. The Bible condemns homosexuality as sin. Genesis chapter 19. Now you remember this account is you had two angels that came to Sodom. They had a task. The, the outcry against Sodom was great. And God had sent these two angels to verify that. And they came and Lot was sitting in the gate. And they were going to stay in the open square. Lot would have none of that. Lot's a very hospitable man. Wanted them to come stay with him. Plus he knew. He knew that city. He knew how those folks were. And so he invites them in. 
And, you know, he's very hospitable. He provides a feast for them, takes care of them. Well, it gets late into the evening, and then the men of the city, both young and old, come knocking at the door. And they say they want to get to know these fellows. Now, I appreciate the New King James Version because it adds no carnally. But if you take the other versions that may not have that carnally, and you think, well, what's wrong with that? They just want to say, hey, where y'all from? Uh, what, what's your job? What you do? Well, the reaction of Lot would tell you that's probably not the correct interpretation of that passage. Because he says, please do not do so wickedly, brethren. Don't do this. What you're asking, that's inappropriate. That's wrong. Now, I'm not going to justify this next part. Yes, he offers his daughters, and that also a clue as to what they were looking for. And I'm not saying that's the right thing to do. I got daughters myself. I wouldn't offer them, but we'll, we'll move on. That's not the sermon tonight. We'll talk about that another day. Uh, and so these guys were like, wait a minute. This guy comes in here acting like a judge, telling us what's right, what's wrong. We're tired of that. We're going to deal with you worse than we were going to deal with them. And so here's Lot trying to calm these folks down, and they're forming a mob. And as they approach the door, the angels grab Lot, yank him in, and strike those men with blindness. They can't even find the door. They get weary. They get tired of trying to find it. And what did that do? That confirmed. That confirmed that the outcry against Sodom was as bad as it had been heard. And I want you to see what happens here, because this is really amazing. We kind of talk about this in our Bible stories and Bible class and vacation Bible school. Maybe we don't appreciate this. Look down in verse 23 of Genesis chapter 19. The sun had risen upon the earth when Lot entered Zoar. Then the Lord rained brimstone and fire on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. So he overthrew those cities, all the plain, all the inhabitants of the city, and what grew on the ground. Total and utter destruction. I want you to imagine you were in Sodom that day. Can you imagine what that was like? I mean, just out of nowhere, here comes fire and brimstone just raining down. You have no clue what's happening. Everywhere you look around, things just going up in smoke, going up in fire, people burning alive. You know how agonizing it is to die by fire. And you're watching that, and eventually it hits you, and then it's your turn. Why would God do such a thing? Why would God do that to his creation? What would cause that? Now, from my reading of the story, I'm pretty comfortable with the immorality, the sexual immorality, the proposal to do homosexual acts. That was part, if not the primary reason for this reaction. But now we're being told, nah, I don't think so. That's, that's not politically correct. We're, 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 we're going we're to look at this differently. You know, we do a lot of revisionist history. So let's do some revisionist Bible history. They say, well, turn with me to Ezekiel 16, 46 through 49. Look over there. Let's, let's see what that has to say. Ezekiel chapter 16, verses 46 through 49. Ezekiel 16, 46 through 49. The Bible says, talking to Jerusalem, your elder sister is Samaria, who dwells with her daughters to the north of you. And your younger sister, who dwells to the south of you, is Sodom and her daughters. You do not walk in their ways, nor act according to their abominations. But as if that were too little, you became more corrupt than they in all your ways. Verse 48. As I live, says the Lord God, neither your sister Sodom nor her daughters have done as you and your daughters have done. Look, this was the iniquity of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, fullness of food, and abundance of idleness. 
Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and the needy. And they were haughty and committed abomination before me. Therefore, I took them away as I saw fit. See, right there, right there. See, that tells you what the problem was with Sodom and Gomorrah. And did you notice it did not say anything about homosexuality. It talked about pride. It talked about fullness. It talked about the failure to meet the needs of the poor and the needy. It talked about being full of themselves. But it didn't say anything about homosexuality. Therefore, Genesis 19 and that fire and brimstone and that total devastation had absolutely nothing to do with the Lord's view on homosexuality. Well, let's, let's look at that. Now, first of all, does it surprise me that if you have a society that has disregarded one of God's teachings, that it would likewise disregard others of God's teachings? That doesn't surprise me in the least bit because it's all about your relationship to God, how you view God. We're going to talk about that in a little Romans chapter 1. So is it surprising that if they were caught up in homosexuality, they might have other problems such as pride and failure to take care of the needy and being greedy and covetous? Does that surprise you? Doesn't surprise me one bit. That's the way things tend to be. When you divorce glorification of God, thankfulness to God, gratitude from God or to God from your life, this is what happens. All kinds of ungodliness. So that doesn't surprise me. And, and the fact that there might have been other sins that they were guilty of doesn't undermine the point. But I'm not even going to give you the fact that homosexuality is not necessarily in that passage. Let's go back and hit that again. At the very end here, look at verse 50. And they were haughty and committed abomination before me. Therefore, I took them away as I saw fit. Hmm. Committed abomination, committed abomination. I seem to remember in Leviticus chapter 18, verse 22. Learn, look over there. Leviticus chapter 18, verse 22. Leviticus the 18th chapter, verse 22. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is, wait a minute, there's that word, an abomination. So the Old Testament says that homosexuality, which is that description we just saw in Leviticus 18.22, is an abomination. Could it be that when it says that they had committed abomination, that's the very thing that the Lord is referring to? But you know what? We don't have to speculate and we don't have to guess because we have some New Testament inspired commentary about Sodom and Gomorrah. Turn with me to Jude 5 and 7. 5 through 7. Jude 5 through 7. Remember we said the first point, the most important point the Bible is the Word of God. What does the Word of God say about this incident in Genesis chapter 19? What is the reason for that? The judgment of God. Jude 5 through 7. But I want to remind you, though you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe, and the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode. abode I'm sorry. He has reserved an everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Now listen to verse 7. As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. What does God say through Jude was the problem with Sodom and Gomorrah? He says they were given over to sexual immorality and they went after strange flesh. What is that? That's homosexuality. And he says that in that way, 
They're an example of the vengeance of God. So I don't have to guess. I don't have to speculate. It is right there in the word of God. But there's more. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. We're making the second point that the word of God condemns homosexuality as a sin. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. 1 Corinthians the 6th chapter, verses 9 through 11. The Bible says, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Do you not know? That the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. But you were sanctified. But you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Love this passage. The passage is very clear, right? The Bible says, God says, inspiration says... That there are certain groups of people, people who practice certain things that may not inherit or not likely or not probably. No, he says will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's clear. That's not, that's not gray. That's black and white. He tells you who those folks are and who's included in that. Homosexuals, sodomites. But here's the second point that I think is so powerful. He says among those brethren in Corinth, there were people who had been in that lifestyle. And such were some of you. Whoa, 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 wait, 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 wait. You can't change that. That, that that's immutable. That, that's, you're born that way. You, you, you can't change. And such were some of you. But you were washed. But you were sanctified. You see, you can change. You can be transformed. You can be delivered. You can have the blood of Jesus to cleanse you. He said these people had been involved in that lifestyle and they were no longer involved. Don't let people tell you that it is inevitable, that it's immutable, that it comes from birth. There's nothing you can do about it. These brethren in Corinth, some of them had been involved in that lifestyle and they came out. And I'll tell you folks, that's still happening today. That's still happening today. Any of y'all ever heard of David Pickup? David Pickup. David Pickup is a licensed marriage and family therapist. I think he's in Houston now, if I remember correctly. And this brother has been doing some fantastic work over the years. He has specifically worked with homosexual men. And there's so many of those men that he's been able to counsel them out of that lifestyle where they have turned their back altogether and forsaken that way of living. So if it's immutable, if you can't change, if you're born that way, somebody forgot to tell Brother Pickup and all the good work he's been doing for decades. If y'all want some, uh, come see me afterwards. I think his website is www.davidpickuplfmt, www.davidpickuplfmt. But check out that website. It's incredible, the stories and the testimonials of these men who've come out of this lifestyle through his counseling, his teaching. And that's just an illustration of the biblical principle that you can change. People can change. That's a message of hope. That's a message we forget sometimes. We get so caught up in standing and for the truth and, and, and kind of building the silo. And, but but we, we're trying to change people. We're, we've got a message of hope. Well, these folks are not our enemies. They're victims. The true enemy is Satan. They're prisoners of war. And we're trying to liberate them. Get them out of the enemy camp. And we have the message to do it. The power of the blood of Jesus. I, was, I remember talking to a, a lady who had a son who struggled with same-sex attraction. He was a Christian. She was a Christian. And we were talking about this passage. And, and he said, you know, to his mom, 
I, I just, I don't believe that. I, I just think that whatever he's talking about there, that must have been a miserable existence and they're always fighting this thing and it's always terrible and it's always, they're about to go right back in it. You don't believe in the power of the blood of Jesus, folks. You don't believe in the power of prayer and you don't believe in the power of the word of God. God's word and the blood of Jesus and prayer change lives. People are different. You can overcome these things just like you can overcome anything. I mean, we don't want to single this out. There are all kinds of temptations that we have. And any of those temptations that fully realized become sin. And sin does what? It separates us from our God. And we all have to be able to resist that, whatever the sin is. This sin can be resisted. This sin can be overcome through the blood of Jesus Christ, through the power of the word of God, and through the power of prayer. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. James 5, 16. The word of God is living, powerful. Hebrews 4, 12. It can do it. We just got to believe in prayer and God and what it can do in the lives of these folks. Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 27. We're establishing again that the Bible condemns homosexuality as sin. That's what the Bible message says, the timeless message of our creator God. Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 27. The Bible says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteous men. Who suppress the truth in unrighteousness? Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Fresh and be wise, they became fools. And changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness and the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions. Even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men, committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which was due. One of the most powerful points about this passage is, where is the root of sin? Where does it start? All sin. We're not going to be particular on this particular point. Any sin. Where, Where does it start? He tells you in that passage. He says... These people, they knew God. They knew, they know God exists. There's abundant evidence for an honest person to conclude that God exists. What may be known of God, God showed it to them. They knew there was God, but you know what? They suppressed the truth in unrighteousness. Now, I like that word suppress because you cannot suppress what you do not know. So you knew, you knew better, but you didn't want to acknowledge it. And he goes further and says the problem with these people is they didn't acknowledge God. They did not glorify him as God. And they were not thankful to God. That's it right there, folks. That's where sin starts. How do you view God? Do you acknowledge God? Do you glorify God? And are you thankful for all that God is, all that God has done, and all that God will do? Because if you're not, this path lies ahead. It's inevitable. And so we need to make sure, you know, when you're young, you you focus so much on don't do this and don't do that. And this is the way you dress and and this is the way you talk. And I'm not saying those things are are important. They are important. But as you get older, you understand that, that, that it's the mindset that has to be developed first. 
get your disposition towards God right, then modesty flows from that. Get your heart towards God right, then proper speech flows from that. Get your heart towards God right, then how you conduct your body in purity flows from that. You've got to have that relationship with God first. It's not just a checklist. It's not just a command. It's about a relationship with God, knowing who God is, being thankful to God, glorifying Him, being grateful to Him. And once you do that, then everything else just naturally flows from that. That's what we got to teach our children. I mean, we, we, we jump into the commands, divorce from context, divorce from, I mean, it's just bringing them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. It's got to be connected to God. Otherwise, we just self-help. Well, we want better citizens, want better states, a, a better country, a better... No. <laughs> I mean, those things are fine. What we want are servants of God. And you get servants of God, guess what? Your community is going to be better. <laughs> you get servants of God, you're going to have better cities and have better states and have a better nation. But it's got to start with your relationship to God. But if you look back to this passage... There's no doubt that he's talking about homosexuality. I want you to go back and see the terminology that he uses when he describes it. Verse 26, vile passage of passions. Then same verse, against nature, uh, leaving the natural use, committing what is shameful, receiving in themselves the penalty of their error. You take those words, it's clear that God is displeased with this conduct. It's clear that God condemns this conduct. Not trying to be mean, not trying to hurt by his feelings. It's just what the scriptures say. And we have to embrace that. I believe what the Bible teaches right there, and you should too. The Bible condemns homosexuality as a sin. But I'm not done. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 through 10. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 through 10. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 through 10. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8 through 10. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless and insubordinate, for the ungodly and for the sinners, for the unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for fornicators, for what? For sodomites. We heard that before over in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. For kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers, and listen to this phrase. And if there is any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine. So can we not agree that everything in verses 8 through 10 is contrary to sound doctrine? And squarely within those verses, what do we find? I'm not singling out, but for purposes of our study tonight, what do we find? Sodomites, homosexuality, contrary to sound doctrine. So folks, that's the word of God. That's what it says on the subject. I was recently, I think it was Pride Month, they were doing a lot of programming about uh, the gay and lesbian lifestyle. And I was watching one particular night. I think Robin Roberts was the one hosting this program. And they were looking at the religious side of things. And they were asking a preacher who was known to be very supportive and embracing of that lifestyle. And, and so, and I forget the exact wording, but Robin's question was essentially, hey, you know, traditionally Christianity has frowned upon this lifestyle. What, what, what do you have to say about that? And, you know, I'm, I'm kind of on the edge of my seat. Yeah, what does he have to say? I mean, I know what 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11 says. I know what Romans 1, 18 through 27 says. I know what 1 Timothy 1, 8 through 10. What verse has he found that, that we've missed? Or what, what interpretation that is beyond most of us that he's got? I, I listened and I listened and I didn't hear a single scripture that was referenced. During the whole discussion. All I heard was this amorphous general view of love. Inconsistent with biblical love. 
that just says, just accept everything, accept everyone, whatever they want to be, whatever they want to call themselves, how they want to live, just embrace it. And that's all I heard. And I still, I kept, where's the scripture? Where's it? So we, we cannot just make it up as we go, folks. God's word has spoken to the issue. And whatever his word says, which leads me to my third point, is we must defend the Bible's teachings on homosexuality. And this is where it gets rough. We must defend the Bible's teachings on homosexuality because I think the temptation is for us to say, all right, yeah, the winds are blowing against us on this one. Well, you know, I, I'm not living in that lifestyle. and I, I, I'm not going to support that, but I don't have to say anything. You know, I don't really have to raise my hand. Yeah, man, bullets are flying out there. I don't want to get my head taken off. And so we're just kind of quiet. We don't say anything. And everybody's talking about, oh, this is wonderful. This is great. We need to embrace this. We need to endorse this. We need to affirm this. And you need to support the right to marriage. And how dare people be against this? And we just sit there quietly. We have nothing to say. We can't do that, folks. That's not our option. Because we have to defend the truth. We have to defend the faith. Look at Jude 3. You've heard this passage before, but turn over there. It's worth reading. Jude 3. We must defend the Bible's teachings on homosexuality. Jude 3. Jude 3. The Bible says, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you exhorting you to what? To contend earnestly for the faith which was once and for all delivered to the saints. He said, I found it necessary. I had to write to you that you have to contend, you have to fight for the faith, the body of doctrine delivered by God, which was once and for all delivered for the saints. Guess what's a part of that? The faith. Guess what's a part of that body of doctrine? God's teachings on homosexuality. And Jude just said that we have to contend earnestly for those teachings and all of the teachings of God's will. We cannot cut this out. We've got to be principled about it, folks. We've got to address it. We've got to, Christianity is not just living a good moral life. So many times we unintentionally suggest to our young people, that's it. Just be good moral people. Don't fornicate. Don't drink. Uh, uh, don't, don't use profanity. Uh, dress modestly. And we think that's it. You, Christianity is a teaching religion. We must teach not just the preachers, not just the elders, not just the deacons. Every Christian has an obligation to share the gospels with others. I'm not talking about necessarily getting up here publicly. I understand there are limitations on that. But in our lives, every single Christian has an obligation, according to 2 Corinthians 5, to be an ambassador for Christ. And we have to teach. We have to open our mouths. And yes, we have to teach on this subject even when it's not popular. We don't have a choice, folks. Look at Ephesians 5.11. Listen to this. Ephesians 5.11, for you guys that like to just, well, I'm just, I'm doing right. I'm, people can see my good works and glorify God in hell. I know Matthew 5.16, but there's more to it than that. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 11. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 11. And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness and their brethren that wish there was a period right there. <laughs> have no fellowship with the unfruitful. Well, I'm not having any fellowship. I'm not doing that. I'm not involved in that. I'm not encouraging that. So I'm good. No, there's more to that verse but rather expose them. Expose them. Now, you can come to me afterwards and tell me otherwise. 
I don't know how you expose something without teaching. <laughs> I think you've got to open your mouth and you're going to expose something as being the works of darkness. You've got to say something from God's word. You've got to open your mouth. You've got to proclaim the truth on that matter. You've got to share God's teachings on that matter. Friends, we do not have the discretion on this point. You can't say, well, you know, I, I'll leave that to somebody else. We've got to do it. We've got to share. Just like anything. Here's the thing. It's the entirety of God's Word, right? It stands and falls together. You can't choose. As we said, the cafeteria style doesn't work. We've got to defend it. And let me give you another thing we need to be careful about. Look at Romans chapter 1, verse 32. We read some of Romans chapter 1, but we didn't get verse 32. Go back there. Romans chapter 1, verse 32. We must defend the Bible's teachings on homosexuality. Romans chapter 1, verse 32. After this terrible parade of evil that comes from, again, the source not recognizing God, not acknowledging God, not glorifying Him, not being thankful. He says this, who knowing the righteous judgment of God that those who practice such things, which we include homosexuality, we just read about earlier, are deserving of death. Now listen to this. Not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. And so folks, it's not enough to simply say, well, I don't do that. The Bible says you also should not approve of people who practice any of these things in Romans 1, 18 down through 32, including homosexuality. And it's getting more and more difficult to do that because we're working in work environments where this is being celebrated under the umbrella of diversity. And we ought to embrace this and this is wonderful and this is great and this is affirming. It's gone beyond just the right of people to engage in the conduct, but they have to be praised. They have to be accepted and the Christian just cannot do that. You cannot do that. And you've got to be very intentional and think through that. I mean, it can be simple things. I know I've had to think about when we have uh, Christmas cards, and I send cards to people. Uh, we have a lesbian couple. I don't send them a card. And I just I don't feel comfortable legitimizing that. Just small things that we have to think about that. Because the God, Bible says it's not enough to say, I don't engage in this conduct. You cannot endorse it. You cannot improve it. And so we've got to be careful. As society, it's going to make this more and more difficult. Young people, it's going to be tough. It's going to be tough in the schools. It's going to be tough in your jobs. But you can't give in. You can't give in. You can't acquiesce. You can't, oh, okay, well, you know, they know where my heart really is, so I'll just say this to get by. No, we can't. And we'll talk about in a second uh, what it means to love. And we'll get to that in a minute. But on this point, I just want you to know that we have an obligation to share the truth of God's Word on this subject. And why do we do that? Why do we do that? Why do we share that? Well, let me tell you why it's not. It's not because it's Republican talking points. It's not because of Fox 6 or Fox News. It's not because of Sean Hannity. I don't care about Republican talking points. I'm not trying to, I'm an independent. You want to know where I come from? I think there's problems on both sides. I've never seen a political party lined up with God's platform yet. If you have, see me afterwards. But, but I think brethren have forgotten this point. Do, do, do you remember, well, young folks may not remember, but uh, Michael Jordan, some would say the greatest basketball player of all time, but others would disagree. But he had a statement one time because they were trying to push him into making some political statements uh, that were considered maybe democratic in nature. And he had a famous phrase. He says, you know what? 
Republicans buy sneakers too. And what's he saying there? He's like, hey, there's some Republicans out there buying my stuff. And I don't want to offend them, so I'm going to be quiet and let them keep buying my shoes. Well, let me borrow that and say, you know what? Democrats have souls too. And I think and independents have souls and libertarians have souls. And if you want to get the other side, yes, Republicans have souls too. Uh, but but, but, but you know, we just can't write off 50% of the country and say, I just don't care about their souls. And yet when you come at somebody with Republican talking points, what do you think is going to be the result? What about Jesus' talking points? Now there's an idea. Something that transcends all. We're going to get beyond all the politics. And we're going to talk about what Jesus said on it. What Bible talking points. That's what we want to do. And that, that's why I say defend the teachings. We want to defend God's teachings. All of God's teachings. I'll give you an example of this. Uh, we, um, years ago in Columbia, Tennessee, we did a community Bible study on this very subject. It was about two nights. And I would present for about 45 minutes, and then we would have open mic night, basically open questions. Uh, we did have moderators, and so we didn't let it get too crazy. Uh, but we knew, we knew, we had heard some, some internet chatter, uh, ch- uh, chatter that uh, there were going to be some atheists in the audience that were li- lying in wait. And sure enough, one showed up. And during the time it was to write down your question, after I spent 45 minutes talking about what the Bible says on homosexuality, he writes this question, he says, all right, you're, you're really gung-ho about these verses like Romans 1, 18 through 27 and 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, 1 Timothy 1, 8 through 10 about homosexuality. How do you feel about women preachers? Now, let me tell you something. Most denominational preachers would have been skewered by that question. But you know what I said? I believe exactly what Paul says, 1 Timothy 2, 11 through 12. <laughs> and that's the end of the matter. And afterwards, we had a discussion. He said, no, look, I, I don't agree with any of that. But I'll give you credit for being consistent. And that's the point. It, we're not cherry picking. Even tonight, picking this subject, it's not like, this is the only thing that matters. All of God's word matters. Because it's reflective of God. What we do with his commands shows how we feel about God. And so what we were trying to do is to capitalize. There was a lot of angst in the country after that Supreme Court decision in 2013. And a lot of religious people were angry at their denomination for not taking biblical stands for truth. And we applauded that. But we said, you know what? There's some other biblical truth that you might want to look into as well and be equally outraged that churches are not preaching and teaching that. It's not just this one thing. That's what we mean by defending biblical teaching. It's a principled approach. We're not defending a way of life. It's not the eh factor. It's not, not a, this is a principled, hey, this is what God says on this matter, and I'm going to defend that as I will anything God says on any matter, Right? That's what we're talking about, principled teaching. And we do that because we love God and we love the souls of men. Look at what Paul says about his teaching. 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, I'm sorry, verses five, chapter 5, verses 9 through 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 through 11. This, this is why Paul preached and why Paul taught. And we need to preach and teach and share the gospel for these reasons as well. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 through 11. Therefore we make it our aim, whether present or absent, be well pleased in him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we're well known to God. And also trust are well known in your consciences. He says, you know, we, we know some things. We know that all of us will appear before Jesus on judgment day. All of us will give account for what we've done in the body, whether good or bad. All of us are going to have to stand and be judged. And he says, we know something else. We know the terror of the Lord that lies for those who are outside the body of Christ. 
And on the basis of that understanding, you know what we do? We sit back in our cozy chairs and let people go to hell. No, we persuade men. We're out there teaching and persuading and sharing. Why? People's souls on the line. We're not going to let that happen on our watch. Not while we have breath in our bodies. That's why we teach. This is a matter of spiritual life and death. And we love our fellow man, which leads me to my last point. And lesson be yours. We defend the biblical teaching on homosexuality in love. We defend the biblical teaching on homosexuality and love. Look at Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15. Ephesians, the fourth chapter, verse 15. We defend the biblical teaching on homosexuality in love. Ephesians, the fourth chapter, the 15th verse. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 15. The Bible says, But, but speaking the truth in disgust. I'm sorry, let me hit that again. But, but speaking the truth in annoyance. No, but speaking the truth in irritation. No, but speaking the truth in anger. No, but speaking the truth in love. May grow up in all things unto him who is the head, Christ. We speak the truth in love. We love God and we love the souls of men. And I tell you, when you have that attitude, when you have that perspective, it changes everything. Because we're looking out for the spiritual welfare of others. Now, I wish Christians would get this. I think sometimes we forget this. Folks, we are in the persuasion business. That's what we're doing. We're persuading people. And, and if you're persuading people, there are things you do not to annoy, irritate, shut the doors of opportunity. I listen to some preachers preach, and I'm like, you have never been in a position to persuade an audience that doesn't already believe everything you said. I can tell the way you said it. You're not persuading folks. We love the souls of men. And we persuade people. We plead, come to Christ. You can have happiness. You can have wholeness. You can have wellness. You can have purpose in life. You can leave that lifestyle behind. We're not just circling the wagons. I've heard too much of that kind of talk. Oh, our way of life is under attack. And we're, we're just going to close down. And we're going to make sure nobody... We're supposed to be going out to the world. We're bringing the light into a sea of darkness. Do we remember that? I, I love what Paul said. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 through 11. We, we forget this sometimes. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Verses 9 through 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9 through Listen to this. I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I've written you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral, covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. You notice what he says there? Paul says, hey, when I told you not to keep company, not to be around sexually immoral people, I wasn't talking about people of the world. What are you going to do? <laughs> you you going to go out of the world? You're going to build this oasis, this spiritual community where you just lock the doors and nobody can get in but Christians? He said, no, you can't do that. He said, when I said that, I'm talking about somebody named a brother who's involved in that. Now that person you got to put away. What's the implication? Folks, we've got to live in this world. And, and we're going to go to school with people who are homosexuals, and we're going to work with people who are homosexuals, and we're going to have homosexuals in our neighborhood. And, and we need to understand that's an opportunity. That's an opportunity. As a young lady, uh, very young, 13, 
And she was asking me, is, is it all right to talk to gay people? What have we done in our preaching and teaching that 13-year-old girls have to ask and we talk to gay people? How are you going to spread the gospel without talking to people? You tell me that. We've got to talk to all kinds of people. Fornicators, adulterers, drunkards. You can't talk to people. You can't spread the gospel unless you talk to them. My, uh, my uh, then 15, now 16-year-old daughter, we went and visited someplace and went to uh, Wednesday night Bible study. And the preacher was teaching the 16-year-olds, the teenage class. And they got to talking about his daughter and homosexuality. And they relayed this story, which I thought was interesting. Evidently, his daughter had befriended one of her school friends who was homosexual. And this friend who was homosexual was saying, you know what? You're not like other Christians. You're not like other Christians. You talk to me. You treat me with respect. You treat me with kindness. Now, I know you don't agree with my lifestyle. You've made that abundantly clear, too. <laughs> but did you, did you hear right that, that testimony? Some of us, that's probably somebody here that have never had a conversation with somebody in the gay lifestyle. Never had a conversation. Young people, I, I know you have. This may be somewhere where you can teach some of the older ones who haven't had it. Because when we came up, that wasn't very prominent. At least it wasn't open. We may have had the conversation didn't know it. But we can have those conversations. And we can treat them with respect. Why? They're made in the image of God. And Christ died for their soul. Friends, that's true of anybody in any sin. It's not us against them. We want them to be cleansed by the blood of Jesus. Just like we were. We're, we're not perfect. <laughs> Preacher made that point too in the class. He said when you get, to get on your high horse and looking down your nose, you start looking back at all the times that God had to forgive you. And if you're honest with yourself, hey, it's embarrassing. And the point he made, for a lot of us in here, we have been around the teaching from the time we came out of the womb. I mean, we've heard it over and over again, and yet some of us have still done wrong. And some of these people never even heard the gospel. Well, who's more accountable? You know who's more accountable. Of course, they heard it all this time, and you're still out there. So let's don't get on a high horse here. Sin is sin, folks. We, we're not going to have gradations of sin. And Well, this sin is really bad. Well, any sin that separates you from G uh, Jesus Christ and having fellowship with him is really bad. Which sins are those? All of them. <laughs> any of them. Any sin. So we're, we're, not, we're not, we love, we care. And when you love and care, you know what? Something happens to your speech. Look over Colossians chapter 4, verses 5 through 6. Colossians chapter 4, verses 5 through 6. We need to defend the biblical teaching on homosexuality in love. Colossians chapter 4, verses 5 through 6. Brother Roberts, don't worry, we're bringing it in. We'll be all right, brother. <laughs> Hang in there. Hang in there. Walk in wisdom towards those who are outside, redeeming the time. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. We need to be careful how we speak, what we say, the terminology that we use. I cringe at some of the things I sometimes even hear from the pulpit when people talk about homosexuality. I think to myself, you know what? You could very well have somebody in your audience right there who's struggling with same-sex attraction and they wouldn't dare tell you the way you just talked about that. We belittle it, we make fun of it, we tell jokes. There's nothing funny about somebody caught up in sin, folks. Nothing funny at all. And uh, I remember a tragic story. There was a church I was at preaching 
on homosexuality. I preached what the Old Testament says in the New Testament. And there was a couple there that said, hey, um, after the service, we, we want to talk to you when everybody's gone. And I said, sure, fine, no problem. So we talked and everybody left and they said, you know, our son who was in the audience that night, he struggles with same-sex attraction. He was kind of in his 30s, if I remember correctly. And uh, she said, hey, he agrees with everything you said because it was the Bible. He doesn't disagree. He's not challenging that, but he still struggles with same-sex attraction. And they told me about, it wasn't that church, another church where this young man had confessed publicly that he was struggling with same-sex attraction. And they treated him like a pariah. Had nothing to do with him. You, you know how discouraging that is? I mean, here, here you work up. Can you imagine the intestinal fortitude that it takes to get up in front of a group of people and to say, I struggle with same-sex attraction. And then the very people who are the children of God who are supposed to love, and who are supposed to be your brothers and sisters, turn their backs on you. Can you imagine that? I don't want to defend that front of Jesus, folks. <laughs> I don't want to be in that boat. And if that ever happens here, if it ever happens if you're visiting at your congregation, please, please don't react that way. I mean, we, I'm not saying endorsing the sin. I'm not saying overlooking. I'm not saying your sins are, but you got somebody confessing, I'm struggling. Throw me a lifeline. We can do that. We can do that. I had a conversation with a young man. I said, look, hey man, I'm heterosexual and I have my struggles, okay? I have my, we all have struggles. The devil's good at what he does. Don't tell me you're never tempted. Don't give me that. <laughs> Let's help each other. Somebody confesses that. Don't look down your nose. Oh, how could you? Hey, brother, let's sit down. Let's study. Let's pray together about that. Hold them accountable. Ask them, how you doing? Is there anything I can do to help you? Well, let's have the Bible study. Let's see what the Bible says about these things. We want everybody to get to heaven, including homosexuals. And that's why we defend the biblical teaching and love. Ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, visitors, friends, co-workers, at whatever category you fall in, I believe that the Bible is the inspired Word of God. And you should too. I believe that the Bible condemns homosexuality as sin. And you should too. I believe that we must defend the biblical teaching on homosexuality. And you should too. I believe that we must defend the biblical teaching on homosexuality in love, and you should too. If you're here and not a Christian, we want to invite you, more importantly, Christ invites you to leave that life of sin, leave that life of meaningless, leave that life of emptiness, and take on a mantle, take on a purpose, the greatest purpose that's ever been served on this side of the grave. And I'm talking about obeying the gospel of Jesus Christ. You've got a problem. It's a problem that I had. It's a problem that everybody here who's a Christian had at one point in their life. And that is they've sinned. And once we had sinned, we're cut off from God. God cannot fellowship sin. And so something had to be done. But the problem was there was nothing that we could do on our own to bridge the chasm that's created by our sin between us and God. Nothing. We can't be good enough. We can't do enough good deeds. We can't not do enough wonderful things. But God did what we could not do for ourselves. He sent his son to die on the cross. And that divine blood 
that propitiation for our sins, that allows us to be cleansed of our sins and allows us to become a child of God through obedience to the gospel. Somebody says, I want that. I want obedience to the gospel. How do I obey the gospel? You hear the gospel message. You believe that message. Based on that belief, you confess that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Based on that belief, you repent of your former way of life. Based on that belief, you are baptized into Christ. And that is not sprinkling, and that is not pouring, it is immersion. Why? Because that's biblical baptism. Romans 6, buried with him in baptism. And when you contact the water, you're buried in that grave. The blood of Jesus washes away all your sins. And you come up out of that watery grave of baptism, a new creature in Christ. And you have what we said before, the most noble work to be done on this side of the grave becomes yours. No, it's not being a doctor. <laughs> no, it's not being a teacher, as noble as that is. No, it's not being a lawyer. Well, not much noble there. Uh, no, it's not being a businessman, not being an engineer. No, the most noble work to be done on this side of the grave is to seek and to save that which is lost. And why can I say that's the most noble work to be done on this side of the grave? Because Luke 19.10 tells me that's why Jesus came. And whatever brought Jesus down from heaven has to be the most noble work to be done on this side of the grave. And so once you come up out of that watery grave, you have really one job in life. Seek and save that which is lost. And remember what Paul told Timothy, 1 Timothy 4, 16. Take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine. For in doing so, you will save both yourself and those who hear you. What is he saying? Make sure you teach right, but make sure you live right. And if you marry those two, you teach right and you live right, you'll save yourself and you're going to save a whole bunch of people through the power of God's word. And that's a meaningful life, folks. That's being useful. You'll wake up every day excited because you're a tool of God. You can do God's will. And the wonderful thing, it doesn't matter how smart you are or not, how talented you are or not, how athletic you are or not, how beautiful you are or not. None of this stuff matters. All that matters is do you love God and do you love your fellow man? You have those two attitudes and with the word of God at your disposal and brethren here that can guide and advise and counsel you in the power of prayer and the power of God's word in your heart. You can do anything. You can turn this community upside down. Don't you want to be a part of that? If you do, tonight is the time, folks. Don't put it off to tomorrow. I wish I could tell you, hey, sleep on it, think about it, get back to me in the morning. I can't say that. Why? Because two things can happen between now and tomorrow morning. One, you could die. And if you die and you haven't been in Christ, that's it. There's no chance. The second thing is the Lord could come back. Either one of those things happens. You haven't obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's no hope. Don't let anybody tell you otherwise. There's no hope. There's, there's nothing in Scripture that would give you hope in that situation. But here's the hope. You can obey the gospel now. I know it's getting late. I know I've gotten on Brother Robert's nerves. That's okay. That's okay. Because we will stay here even longer if you want to be baptized tonight. And we will rejoice. We'll rejoice about it. We will stay here to one in the morning if necessary. We want you to obey the gospel of Jesus Christ and have the greatest sleep you've ever had in your life. Thanks for listening to the Westside Church of Christ podcast. For more information about Westside, you can connect with us through our website, justchristians.com, and our Facebook page. Our music is from Upbeat.io. That's Upbeat with two P's, U-P-P-B-E-A-T, where creators can get free music. Please share our podcast with others, and we look forward to seeing you again. Yeah.